0: Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. I'm Tristan Stevenson, your host, and on this exclusive episode, we listen back to some of the best bits from the category led episodes. I've been joined by some of the most knowledgeable, passionate, and renowned guests in the industry. First up are Podreg Fox and Ed Hughes. Podreg is the general manager at the Guinness Open Gate Brewery and Ed Hughes is just a general beer expert. They came into the studio to chat all things beer related. We got talking about the origins of beer and how it has evolved over the years, including the impact of culture and place on flavors and styles. Where did beer come from? How on earth did
1: this whole thing start? Well, they're still finding evidence. I think, it, because ironically, you know, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but beer is the oldest alcoholic beverage in history. So we're looking nine, maybe 10,000 years old. Like, there's even rumors of beer before bread or a byproduct of be- bread. Hunter gatherers stopped hunter gathering to make beer. Um, but they're still finding more and more evidence, whether it's in China, um, Mesopotamia, and we're still on this voyage of discovery, whereas so much study has been done in in spirits and di- again different spirits and wine that we're all on this voyage of discovery. So I don't think there's a, a pinpoint mm-hmm. sort of origin story.
0: No, well, no, I don't. No one knows the inventor of beer, unless Podrick, Unless you want to come in now and tell me something that is incredible, and you know the individual that invented. You don't do. You? No, I don't know. <laughs>
2: Starting to sweat there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, because yeah, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with civilization, doesn't it? Yeah. You think about it, like 10,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers stop hunting and gathering. They start growing crops because they think it's gonna, life's going to get a bit easier when they've got access to stuff all year round. They start settling down. They start having bigger families. They start tending the land. Then they've got all these cereals where before it was like a cacophony of different fruits and cereals and animals perhaps they're eating. They've got all this these sort of early strains of barley and wheat and what have you, and, they, and they, they're like, right, well, we need to eat these. So they start mashing them up with water, they start cooking them perhaps, and you've got kind of basic porridge or, or bread or the building blocks of beer. And as we know, when you leave stuff with sugar lying around... Inevitably, yeast because yeast is everywhere, right? Yeah. Start, comes in, lands on this porridgey, soupy stuff, and then starts converting the sugar into alcohol. When you've got alcohol, you know you've got something that I guess kind of um, you know it makes life that little bit easier when you're toiling the land uh, ten thousand years ago, and there's you know no Netflix or anything yeah. else to keep you entertained. There's
1: Egyptian tablets. There's 110 recipes for beer. For tonics like most alcohol started off as tonics and hmm. same with, with gin or Geneva or where, whatever it would be um, and it's it's been documented and there's still more documents being found but back to that there isn't that one origin story because it's global as well there wasn't a one country every country and I'm sure we'll get onto it later you know there isn't a one country that's more important there's some countries that have been more influential because of sort of global migration but like beer was everywhere hmm. 6000 years ago 7000 years ago hmm. egyptians china south america over in europe it's yeah arguably the birth of spirits and you'll definitely correct me on this one about well. freeze distillation it's no brainer really, yeah yeah yeah. Isn't it?
2: yeah i think one of the really fun and interesting things about it is that we talk about beer has always been there since the civilization of man but traditionally it was a, a female role was was the brewer yeah. um we got married a couple of years ago and we brewed a beer for our wedding and uh, on the back label like very specifically called out it was a bride ale because that's where the word bridal actually comes from it was brewed by the mother of the bride prior to the wedding basically every single civilization ancient
0: civilization and going forward more recent civilizations since then have been making beer or or in some shape or form fermenting so how how i mean it's it's a big question but how have we established these different styles and which countries first influenced it
2: I think it's more than just the countries. It's more kind of ingredients and access to ingredients probably um, helped it a little bit more than just location. So you think about Czech Republic, Germany, lovely, nice water, perfect for brewing pilsners, Helles beers, things like that. You look more towards Albion in the UK, a lot more sulfur, which is perfect for ales. And then the water in Dublin is just perfect for that darker style of beer. So nowadays, I mean, you can filter your water, you can add uh, uh, different elements to it to make it available to brew any style of beer. But traditionally, going back, it's right what, malted barley is local What hops are local mm. uh, and even up until the 16th, 17th century there was no hops at all it was literally mm. just thrown in for a bit of flavour it could have been heather it could have been gorse it was whatever botanical you could get your hands on exactly. so when you go back through history it, it's really more what was available to the brewer at the time versus a dedicated right we're going to be a lager brewery in 17 whatever Yeah. Mm, well, I suppose it's teowar it,
1: it, back to that pedestal we put wine on it's using the best possible ingredients to get the best possible outcome and nurturing those ingredients those various ingredients um, I'd say probably the turning point for modern history that sort of changed everything was 1842 in the town of Pilsen where they discovered a bottom fermenting yeast Saccharomyces pastorianus, and so everything up until that point was either wild, so lambic, like you were saying, with wild yeasts and spontaneous fermentation, or a uh, top fermenting yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and then that bottom fermenting lager yeast. Even though the word lager is a German word, mm. that bottom fermenting yeast changed everything.
0: Okay, I want to get onto the difference between lager and ale a little bit later. Once we start talking about cool. how beers made, so we'll come back to that definitely. Um, so what we're saying is that the style of beer. Was not so much based around, you know, culture, but more around the available natural resource, whether that's wheat or barley, whatever happens to grow well in that area. And then that's sort of in concert with the water source as well. So certain waters you mentioned before about um, uh, Dublin, being the water traditionally being particularly well suited to brewing darker beers. So what what is it about the mineral content or hardness of the water that is conducive to that?
2: Yeah, so it's a little bit more of a hard water style. So that gives you, um, at times, kind of little harsher flavors. Uh, so if you were to brew a lager with that kind of harder water style, what you're going to do is get a little bit more sulfuric, kind of uh, harsher flavors towards the back end of the flavor. But for something like a stout or a porter, where it's much more uh, roasted barley, heavier kind of coffee, chocolatey, earthy flavors, they'll actually hide a lot of the flavors of the water underneath. Because if you go back to um, over 100 years ago in, in Dublin, Dublin was was actually kind of categorized as a a third world city. There was a lot of tenements, a lot of poverty. We didn't have like indoor plumbing until the the 40s and 50s. So uh, previously to that, the water supply was what people relied on. So you couldn't always guarantee the specific quality of it. So it took a lot of uh, effort and skill from the brewers to be able to sometimes mask the quality of the water in the different beers.
0: Mm, Okay.
2: It's interesting though, isn't it?
0: Because you have... This is one of the things I love about um, beer wine and spirit is you have... A natural resource that's abundant because of the the terroir, the geography, the soil type, or whatever it might be. Then you have a culture of people um, that 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 live there, and they they recognise that, and they begin making a product using those materials. The flavour of the product is shaped by those materials, and then becomes the flavour of that culture. Mm. And so, when you go to Germany and drink a Pilsner, um, you're really drinking a beer that is of not just of that culture, but of that particular place, yeah. of that environment, of the, the you know, whatever, the humidity, the temperature, the soil type, the, the lay of the land, the amount of sunshine, um, even things down to like fermentation temperature, which would, you know, not have been controlled in the past, I guess, you know, that would affect the esters, the congeners that you're making during the ferment, and therefore affect the flavor of the final product. So you're not you're not really talking about a product that's made by human beings as such. They're just kind of middlemen in between what is naturally
1: available and the, the outcome, that end product. And this is, this is the lovely thing about our platform now is sort of enthusiasts. These are stories that don't come out. The average beer drinker, and I, I try not to get too, too militant about it, the average beer drinker hasn't been told these stories And sometimes it's the average bar person hasn't been told these stories, you know, and it's not to be damning of the brewing industry. But I think it's in its infancy to a certain extent compared to wine and spirits, because back to that, you know, that sort of um, fictitious pedestal that I I speak of. I worked in bars for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years. No one ever taught me anything about beer. The The general salesperson would come in saying, you don't want that on the bar. I'll do you a deal on this. It's like, well, you save your GP, you, you know, you, as an operator, your boss is saying you make wicked GP on that. Get that in. But you're not taught about flavour. Whereas we're in this lovely, you know, sometimes confusing world now where people want the knowledge and we have got so many stories to tell.
0: Now, let's look back at one of my favourite episodes when my pals Jake Berger and Craig Harper came into the studio to talk gin. In this clip, which is from before things got heated, we talk about London Dry Gin as a classification and the humble Juniper Berry. There was a sort of tipping point where brands up to about, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, any new gin brand felt compelled to classify themselves as a London Dry just because it was just the norm.
3: And consumers recognised it.
0: And consumers it. it, even though they didn't know what it meant. exactly. And then at some point in time, I've got a few ideas as to which brands you know, made this happen, There was no longer any need to do that. It didn't need to be a London Dry, and therefore it gave you carte blanche to make products that weren't really gins
4: anymore. I've looked into the the earliest reference I've found to those three words, London Dry Gin, being get back to in the 1930s, and in fact it was an advert for Gordon's gin was the first place I've seen that phrase used. Whether whether Gordon's were the true precursors of that, I don't know for sure, but that's, I think the, they al- were. that's the earliest reference I found to it. But that was just a, you know, that was a, a, a phrase used in, in advertising. It wasn't a designated, protected style of gin. But one of the first things I point out is that it's not a protected geographical status that doesn't have to be made in London I would imagine 50% of the consumers think that London gin comes from London mm. and of course it doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it should uh, I think you know most things that have got protected origin status like champagne and cognac uh, they have a protected status because the terroir the area influences the flavour and the character of the product
0: it's a little bit like um, American bar in a way isn't it You know, yeah, it, it doesn't have it's to signified. be in America but yeah. it's significant it's signifying drinks. of where that style of bar came from
3: I, I think the first thing John Doxett, who is quite a famous gin writer of his time, who didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. He was the first person I sort of explained London Dry Gin. And he said it was essentially as the drier style became more popular than what had gone before. Dry Gin just didn't sound as good as London Dry Gin. And that is a way of them signifying. And at the time, the major brands were still here. And it gave them, uh, I, I guess, a USP, something that was quite unique for themselves. And again, whether that's true or not, but it's you know that those brands were there now it was the predominant style and it just sounded better than the non-sweetened gin that perhaps they were
4: selling in quantities before that.
0: Probably a good time actually just to say what a London Dry gin should be and what it
4: should taste like. None of the flavours should come from the spirit, none of the flavours should come from the water and all of the flavours should come from the botanicals. So for that reason the spirit that we use is essentially as close as we can get to completely colourless, flavourless, odourless, pure ethanol as is practical through conventional distillation means. Uh, the water we use is, generally speaking, has gone through you know some pretty uh, intense uh, purification processes. So for most London Dredjins, the whole story is in the botanicals. And uniquely to London Dredjins, the regulations say that those botanicals must be of natural origin. We can't use... Extracts concentrates uh, artificial flavorings, especially parts of plants and juniper forward, right? And juniper, of course, must be the, the predominant mm. flavor. It's also now, the most debatable point, I'd say. Though, well, I was going to say, yeah, it's quite
0: subjective, isn't it? it well, very, not not always not subjective, subjective,
4: but uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, in some of the categories, like bourbon, where you know they talk about corn being the predominant grain and the mash bill must be made about a fifty-one percent corn minimum. Um, It's easy enough
0: to do, right? I mean, it's just maths. Yeah, yeah. for
4: gin, there's no maths or science involved. Regulations
3: can sometimes be helpful because they give you a frame and they allow people not to wander too far left or right of where ideally you want to be. So I I don't know if it's actually helpful in this case. Yeah, but what
0: I'm saying is if all of the juniper-four gins in the world, like Tanqueray and Gordon's, etc., were designated London Dry, then that would be a useful framework for me. But of course, there are gins being produced in America and lots of different parts of the world that conform yeah. to London Dry, but don't call themselves London Dry because they're attempting to create a new category of gin in their native markets. That's true. So what about classic cocktails? So many of these were uh, gin cocktails were invented in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and of course called for London Dry Gin or occasionally Old Tom Gin. Um, so, the kind of formula. Or, or Holland's gin. Or Holland's gin, yeah. even, yeah. yeah. When we can talk about that. Um, and the formula for these drinks are based on that Juniper Ford design of gin as it was then. So when we're recreating these classic cocktails, we're not really recreating the
3: drink if we're not using a juniper for gin, right? Um you could argue that but I also say those cocktails tend to be really sweet. So we had a very different palette, I think, back in the you know, the late eighteen hundreds. There was gom in a martini, mm. which, you know, that's authentic if if you want to say that, but I'd have a heart attack if you uh, I saw someone pick up the bottle of gom to pop it in my martini afterwards as well. So it's like how much do you want to adapt it? And I know what you say about gin needing some protection, but I also think the door needs to be open for people who aren't there yet. I mean Tancre um it's, it's my favourite gin but it's very juniper dominant it's a big bold flavor it's probably not
4: the first gin you're gonna try you need to warm up. Tanqueray is a pretty good kind of time capsule of what gin would have tasted like in the 1830s the 1840s when the style that we now know as London Jar gin was really in its infancy when it was first becoming uh, noticeably different from the Dutch gin.
3: And shows you we can do less is more sometimes that looking at the balance of less flavors can actually give you a something a better result.
0: That's a pretty good segue into the history side of things, though, and you mentioned Holland's gin already. So let's go back to... Well, how far How far do you want to go back? Do you want to go back to the early kind of imported gin? 1495.
4: <laughs> when gin was how not very nice. Not? I've, tried to, I've tried that recipe.
3: <laughs>
0: I'll, tell you what, I'll tell you how far we'll go back. We'll go back even further than gin. Let's talk about juniper itself. Like, why was juniper, the ingredient that's used to make the mm-hmm. spirit. I mean, gin is unique in respect that all the other sort of major spirit categories, be it rum, whiskey, tequila or agave spirits, bourbon, um, brandy, they're all made from a specific base material that is, um, you know, indigenous, the, the place where the spirit is made and, you know, readily available. So you turn it into something that's alcoholic, like a beer or a wine, and then when the technology of distillation becomes available to you, you distill it and you've captured that thing that you can then drink throughout the seasons. But gin is different, right? Because it's not flavoured by its base material. It is distilled and then redistilled with other ingredients. And there's no other spirit that has achieved that level of success
4: and popularity. Apart from maybe spiced rum, you might argue. Spiced rum. Flavoured vodka.
0: Yeah, flavor,
3: yeah, I suppose so. Um, but... They're not speed rail products, right? Like Correct. a gin. Is. Yeah. So I, I think about a lot of those categories were flavoured though back in the day, but then we refined the techniques and made it better and better and better. We no needed we didn't need to add those mm. things anymore. Like whiskey was definitely sweetened and definitely had botanicals. Yeah, this on is its a hand. very good point. I mean, yeah, I've, and I
4: certainly think it was exactly what you said there, Craig. It was sweetened and flavoured because it wasn't. We weren't very the, good at making the, it the best spirit. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't nice on its own.
0: What's the deal with the gin and tonic? Why does it work so well? Why 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 does tonic work better with gin,
3: arguably than any other spirit? Um, it, I, I, I think there's probably a little bit of tradition there though I think that the original reason I, I've always attributed it whether it's true or not was that it's very much like lime and rum in the navy they wanted you to take the lime for medicinal reasons and the rum made sure you actually took it as opposed to ignored it and the gin ration uh, in the British Army was used accordingly, coordinate social control, it's a reward for being a good boy. But that the, the chinchona they were giving you the queen in that time was really, really bitter. It wasn't very pleasant. And I've actually made uh, Jake one of these gin and tonics before we actually make it on the spot with quinine. But you know that was the way they made sure that because if you don't take the quinine every day you're at risk. Mm. So I think that association was there and because they had to do it every day they, they looked to improve it. They added citrus if they were lucky enough to get their ice in that part of the world. I think if you look at some of the George Orwell books uh, when he was when he was out in India he talks about how they used to try and create this colder drink possible but using really evaporation.
4: Been around about the same time, 18, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s when when ice really became prevalent in Europe and America in terms of us uh, uh, being able to acquire and use it in our drinks. Um, and certainly, you know, a chilled gin and tonic is nicer than, than a room temperature one for Definitely. sure. Um, Speaking of which,
0: uh, we have a gin and tonic to try, to taste, um, just because since we're talking about the organoleptic properties and the careful mixture of these two ingredients, tonic water and gin, um, it makes sense to, t- to taste one. So we've got some long glasses. I'm going uh, to... Tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, Craig, to mix together a few, um, one each. We've got... Uh, we've actually got canned gin and tonic. Yeah. And that was a special request of yours, wasn't it, Jake? <laughs> this is Gordon's and tonic in a can. And I, I actually... I'm a big fan of canned gin and tonics for one very good
4: reason, which I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But by all means, Jake, you go first. The gin and tonic... In a can, the gin tin, whatever you want to call it, has has very quickly become uh, kind of uh, an iconic part of English society. People, you know, if you look on the first day, the first sunny day, if you go into the uh, local kind of uh, supermarket or uh, or or off licence, you know, the shelves are instantly stripped. People grab them, take them to the park. I think very quickly, English have not just. Seen it as a convenient way, but for many people, they probably it's their only source of gin and tonic these days. Um, you know, people people have really fallen for the gin and the tin, I think, and that's why (laughs) it's that sound.
0: One of the things that I think is uh, great about it as a pre mixed drink out of a can is that it's a higher carbonation level than you'd normally get when mixing gin and tonic water, because of course. The alcohol in the gin and tonic, the, the gin, uh, is not carbonated. And so you're immediately diluting the fizz when you start to mix it with tonic water. Whereas because this is a sealed vessel containing both ingredients which have been carbonated together, you're, you're getting that extra level of carbonation. Um, but going back also to the, the combination of gin and tonic, one of my theories about why gin and tonic go so well together is that when we distill an ingredient, we're really only capturing the aroma of it. What you're losing there is the the taste com- components of the, of the juniper. So we're losing acidity, astringency, bitterness, sweetness. And tonic water reintroduces a lot of those characteristics back into the gin, especially bitterness and sweetness. And so you're almost kind of deconstructing, reconstructing juniper when you distill it into gin and then reintroduce tonic water back into it. And you're getting more of the juniper berry
4: once the tonic water is added. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I never really thought of it, but that, that, that stacks up to me, yeah, for sure.
0: Now, from juniper berries to sugarcane, let's talk about rum. Ian Burrell and Peter Hollands join me for a fascinating look into the story, culture, and styles of rums, plus its flavors, diversity, and how best to feature it on menus. I always say, like, rum is probably the most diverse spirit category out there because we have rums that are kind of not dissimilar to vodka in their style. Mm-hmm. We've got rums that are more like cognacs, or brandies, yeah. some that are kind of, I guess, a little bit like whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and then you've got spice drums as well. There really is kind of everything. I've said to colleagues before. I, I don't think there is a cocktail out there that you couldn't change the base spirit to a particular you rum know, as long you, sound as like,
5: you sound like me yeah. <laughs> if,
0: if, if, if you can change, you can switch out the base spirit to a rum a, a particular rum there'll be, yeah. there'll be a rum that'll be similar to that base spirit that you're moving and the cocktail will probably still taste pretty good yeah, 100%, you can't yeah. say that yeah. about any other spirit category can mm, you
5: no not really definitely not um, a lot of the other spirits are and um, they, they're quite <clears throat> distinct in their flavor profile and the rumours and that and uh, yeah, once you start switching them out of um, or trying to, trying to use them in a particular drink you do basically change the complexity to change the flavor profile of that drink completely. Mm. So you're right, rum is rum is much more easier, I think, to to substitute in into a cocktail if you're Example: a, 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 One of my favorite drinks is a rum Manhattan, mm-hmm. and um, and by just switching the rum, let alone of a move for the bitters, by just switching the rum, you can make a multitude of different types of man rum Manhattan mm-hmm. um, as such. But if some if someone said, "Well, what would you use instead of a um, for a rum instead of a, in a Rob Roy?" Then yeah, I'm going to go for something really big mm-hmm. and heavy and smoky as a rum mm-hmm. as such to emulate that Scotch. Then, but if I'm uh, having a Manhattan, whether it be a rye or a bourbon, then I'm going for something a little bit more sweeter uh, in the profile um, using that rum in there. So it, it is a lot easier, as you, I agree. A lot easier to switch out the other spirits and put a rum inside there and still get an amazing tasting drink.
0: Do you think that, I think this is probably more appropriate to a bar, talking about flavor. Mm. Um, and, and in a way, I guess I'm kind of reflecting off what we do at Black Rock with, <laughs> yeah. um, with whiskey by mm-hmm. categorizing by six different flavor groups. You think yeah. that's an option for rum. So for example, you have your, I don't know, like chocolatey and Sherried, yeah. Yeah. like where something like Zacapa might sit. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, and then you have a light and fragrant where mm-hmm. you might get one of more, more lighter rum, perhaps from Puerto Rico or Cuba yeah. or something like that. Right. And then you, you know, you use these different flavor categories. Mm. You don't don't pay any attention to how it's been distilled, what country it's from, yeah, yeah. anything like that. You just do it purely on flavour. Is that an option
5: for rum? I, I definitely think hundred uh, percent because what you're doing there, you're creating an experience uh, for the consumer. And as Pete said, if you only got a small amount of rum, and but they're all quality and they all basically show um, the the up the upgradability of the products, um, the consumer what they want. is something they're going to enjoy. Because I don't know too many people that go to a bar to drink and not enjoy themselves and not have a good experience. So (laughs) something like that, (laughs) I don't know many. (laughs) So you want to have a great time. Um, So something like that is a great experience um, for them. And if you're guiding them, which is even better, and say if you want something more sherry notes or sweeter, then have this. If you want a little sweetened, I should say, and have that. If you want something that's sweet naturally, or if you want something that's dry, much more Like your throat? Yeah, like my throat. We better have a (laughs) a sip of this. Is this... this Oh, it's not for, Don't the, worry, for the Puerto Rican rum. It's water. We'll,
0: we'll have a sip of something a little bit um, <laughs> um, more interesting
5: um, a But yeah, you're, you're, you're creating, you're creating, what's called, a a, a mind map for them um, as such in regards to flavour. And then that's when they will say, oh, you know, what, I like that particular style of rum. And then they'll look to discover what the brand is or the production of it once they peel away some of the layers. But I think that's a great idea. We have,
6: we have um, other, I mean, I, I, ultimately, I... I I never thought I'd want to open a bar, because I've, I've seen its part work, quite frankly, and I come out <laughs> yep. from the, like, the other side of the bar. But I, You're much uh, better off on I'm, the other side the I'm, man, I'm, also, I'm yeah. getting, I'm, To be fair, I, I get a, I'm getting a little closer to it, but so I, I think about how would I lay it out. And I like the idea of laying out a menu that says, these are my pure single rums. But then against that, I'd have to say, and this one's from Guyana, and this yeah. one's from Jamaica. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. I can go by country, and then next to that, then I can then say, this is a pure single rum. So mm-hmm. I, I, it would be, for me, my ultimate one would be a, a combination. And if it then further had a flavor style against it, fine. I, don't, you, I know you don't want to make a menu too complicated, but if you can share information. I mean, I, one of the ones I did recently was like, can we, you know, I, I say this about normalizing language. So if it's a rum that's been sweetened, for example, put it there. Put it actually, just put a note on there, so that if someone's enjoying that, they mm. know what to look for as a marker That's to right. carry on enjoying that style. So yeah. you know, when yeah. you have your 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 range of different things, so I think for me, if I was going to kind of have to commit a memory right now, it would be say it would be regional, but it would have those classifiers because I don't want to mm-hmm. scare people by saying. <laughs> That pure single rum is the you know is the the driver because also people go to Dominican Republic on holiday come back they've had a fantastic time when they go into a bar they see that immediately they're transported So it. it's a very evocative spirit it's very emotional um, and I don't, I wouldn't want to lose that you know I don't let's let's keep the emotion the enjoyment of it you know mm-hmm. so but normalize it but but share it mm-hmm. you know and and you can put a code on the very easily on a menu. Mm-hmm that for those that are interested, they will look further. For those that are not, then they just pick out the brands they want. And some people will never go beyond the one that's in a magazine because that's where they feel their safety is, and they don't want to ask the bartender. But the ones that want to ask will drill down. And you know what? If you've got a menu, when someone comes up and goes like, so what does this mean? You've started a conversation with a mm. person on the other side, and once you've got that conversation going, then you, then you can build trust. In yeah. You've got a reason for them to come back. And I just that, that, that feels like that point of upsell Mm -hmm. it always comes to upsell and to make someone's experience a little better so a menu is a a tool to get you there a similar
0: conversation came up with Dave Broom and Irvin Tchaikovsky on a special Scotch 101 episode in partnership with Johnny Walker we chatted about the simplicity of scotch the importance of its flavor tips for making a perfect highball and their personal scotch moments for the vast majority of drinkers and for the vast majority of bartenders what they need to
7: know is What does it taste like? And and conceivably, where is it from? How do you use it? Uh, That's all they need to know, and that's probably all the the customer really wants to know. Mm. They want to know what what the flavour is. So I think, as an industry, and I've counted myself as being part of that, we really need to kind of spin everything around and talk flavour and talk in a really, really simple but not patronising way. I think the more interesting... More interesting work is actually getting people into the whisky tent rather than talking to people who are already inside it, yeah. uh, and and that's not uh, denigrating them in any way whatsoever. Uh, but it's far it's far more exciting. You know, exactly what Erv was saying. It, it's to find get that moment where somebody has said, "I don't like whisky," and they go, "Oh wow, I, I never knew whisky could be like this." And all you've done is add some soda water to it. Uh, that that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and it's happening. You know, it's I, you know, I've just been at two whisky shows over the past couple of weeks. You look at the way in which people are approaching whiskey, you look at the way the way the bartenders are approaching whiskey. Mm. Uh, a whole new generation of people are, are interested in whiskey, but they're interested in in a different way.
8: Great. I you think know? how they come on board with things now is completely different as well. Like people that are trying to get into Scotch whiskey are not really likely to walk into a supermarket and pick up and take that risk on that bottle of 40 or 50 or 60 pound malt but if you've got this access point which is the bar and you have a bartender that's able to talk to you in an engaging and, and inspirational way then you're probably likely to try it and I think it's the, the access point for whiskey I'm noticing it's not it has changed but it's just kind of diversified a bit it's not really that moment when you have had it a million times being from Scotland where you get that family member who goes go on son Pick that, All right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's not so much there anymore, and this people are experiencing it in new ways, which is exciting.
7: And uh, it's almost like you—you you don't tell people it's whiskey, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that because it, I think folk have still got this, these preconceived ideas about what whiskey is, and the fact that they think that they won't like it. Uh, you just give them a good drink.
0: Yeah, folk had that same preconception about gin fifteen, yeah. twenty years ago as Absolutely. well, right? And look at the look at the state of that category now. Yeah. Any more tips for highballs? If, like, bartenders who are trying to create their own highballs, what is permitted modifications of highballs or
8: ice um, technique of building them, stirring them, anything like that? I think the biggest thing and the biggest... The the only thing you can really go wrong with with a highball is warm mixers. It's fridge space. Um, it needs to be cold. You can do things like... I mean, essentially, if you write a great thing on a menu, people are going to order it, right? And it's... like all these rare and um, in fact you know what all these sodas right it's like bars make their own soda water right do you remember being in were we were in kiev mm. and we, walk, we were walking into some bars and it was just like it was all these amazingly elaborate fantastic tasting sodas right made from soda siphons but they're all flat right
0: yeah they weren't carbonated correctly, and they were, weren't
8: carbonating correctly. and i mean the, the things that a highball needs to be is cold refreshing and, and fizzy mm. right so using things like cordials And just using really good quality premium soda Mm. rather than going to all the effort to infuse your own water and siphon it properly is a fantastic way to go about it. And it holds for much longer as well. It's, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd say cordials and cold fizzy soda um, and Johnny Walker Black Label exclusively. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think I would rather be served a highball made with
0: tap water than one that suggests it's supposed to be fizzy but is actually nearly flat yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah, it's joking. so disappointing to receive that and get that kind of feeble texture on the palate and you're like Ugh, God, why bother yeah yeah um so let's change the subject slightly um we, we've been talking about like how you might go about getting people excited about it, scotch whiskey how you get that initial aha moment of oh wow this is a versatile drink i can drink it neat it's got a you know diversity of flavors to it i can explore malts and blends do you guys can you guys share with us any personal kind of eureka moments that you had when you were perhaps getting into the industry or even more recently where you've gone wow you know something that's surprising and
8: something that has elevated your passion for it, your interest or intrigue initially like for me it was the first person that told me that I, i could it was a bit of ice makes a difference and it shows how that if you had just the simplest little thing it kind of breaks down the barrier between you it makes it a wee bit colder adds a wee bit more dilution and that was what really made me go wait a minute I actually do like this stuff I think the thing that continues to amaze me is kicking about judging world class finals and in various markets and seeing the the lengths that people push scotch to um is absolutely ridiculous um it's so hard to even say one particular, like, aha, mm-hmm. but every time you go out to a country and you see someone tell their own Scotch story, that's what's the most amazing thing, telling their story and making you this drink that you would have never obviously made yourself. Um, we're quite lucky to get quite a few eureka moments from it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
7: I think in some ways it's context and associating with, with the place. mm uh, you know, like being on Isla, and you know, sitting on the beach on Isla, and you're just surrounded by seaweed and salt and everything. You're drinking a dram. You kind of go, "Oh my god!" You know, everything around me is in this glass. Mm-hmm. That's an aha moment. Uh, and, and but e- equally, I remember one in in South Africa, and we'd, we'd driven an insanely long way just to get to the ocean, uh, to the Indian Ocean, uh, and had a bottle of whiskey with us, and we're just walking, uh, paddling in the Indian Ocean. As the sun was going down, and it was just perfect, mm. and, and that was an aha moment because you know it was a very non-whisky moment. You know, this is not for normal. Well, it's not normal behaviour anyway. Related, but, <laughs> but you know, it, 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 it kind of it took whiskey out of that. Oh yeah, it has to be in leather armchairs uh, moment, which into yes, you can just you know have it. Not quite as a tiki drink, but but you know it was
8: there. That that was an amazing aha moment for me. I think there's something in that. Like there's certain places in Scotland that is just that are just magical to drink whiskey, and it's part of the allure, and it's why people travel ten to eight to six thousand miles, however far, it is, to come to Scotland and stand on the lighthouse at Port Ellen, or stand on the beach at Car and Car- Car- it's like. Scotland is literally like one great big whiskey Instagram post. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, I've climbed up the old band of store and drank the thing. Aye. Um, Aye, be, be, <laughs> because
7: because uh, the thing that's kind of obsessing me about whiskey at the moment uh, is, is this idea of place. Hmm. You, know, the, the, you know, it is a manifestation of place. It's a manifestation of culture. That, you know, when you are drinking that single malt whiskey uh, in situ, it is this you know it's about more than just that liquid, it's about more about all that that kind of scientific process the so it, 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 there's a down. visceral there's a visceral quality to, to, to whiskey mm. uh, you know it, it speaks to your heart uh yeah and, and people and, as and, well and, right? and that, that's really really important you know that we, we 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 tend to drink whiskey with our heads rather than our hearts mm. uh and we need to start drinking whiskey with their hearts
0: yeah and and the people as well as place right i mean when the liquid we get in a bottle is a result of a blender's decision to mix this cask with that cask or this distillery with this distillery and so in a way you're kind of appreciating someone's personal perspective of what whiskey mm. should and could taste like and this yeah. is why when you, know, you travel away from scotland and you see other countries producing malt whiskeys you get that regional or national take aye, on the spirit aye. itself you know? which is brilliant I mean you've, you've obviously travelled extensively around Japan and uh, you know there's a it's a different style of spirit that's made there that is more Japanese <laughs> 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 no, yeah, no but you're, you're absolutely right
7: you know, and you know I always say Japan makes the best Japanese whiskey in the world and mm. Scotland makes the best scotch yeah. uh, and that you know it sounds glib but it's really important you know the, 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 the approach their whiskey making in subtly different ways to to Scotland mm. while using the same equipment the same principles. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the, 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 everything impinges on it in in some way. Yeah. And that's what's glorious about whisky, is is variety. You know, it, it's not just this kind of one note. Uh, you know, it's not trying to find variations on juniper and, and, you know, much as I love gin. You know, it's, you know, there is a limited palette there. Yeah. Uh, whereas whisky you know it's, it's enormous
8: like, it's enormous it's like when you travel around Scotland it's like every like if you look at some of the like, the, distiller, the distilleries that have the towns that have distilleries it's just like the town really should shouldn't be there And it exists as a result of the fact that they produce this one unique style of whiskey that they've been producing there for a couple of hundred years that a town has flourished around. And it's why we have so many of these amazing places to visit all over the four corners of Scotland. It's wicked.
0: Yeah. I mean for me I would say definitely some of my best aha moments have been when I've been at a distillery and meeting a distiller or appreciating the area around the distillery and then of course you read up on it and the history of it and you you come to appreciate and admire how this anomaly has come to exist, this strange place with its copper pot stills and um, warehouses full of wooden barrels. And you kind of get to drink all of that in, literally and sort of metaphorically whilst you're there. And it sort of heightens the experience for me, getting to visit all these places. Last but not least, it's tequila. And what a treat it was to have expert guests, Dino Moncrief, and Eduardo Gomez joining us for this one. They touch on how tequila and agave came to be, and we might have sampled some Don Julio too. How did tequila come around? What's the relationship between tequila and mezcal in terms of their uh, uh, origin story? And they're both nodding at each other like, right, you take that bit, you take yeah, that bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Eduardo. <laughs> so you, you,
9: take the, you take the history bit, I take the modernity side of things. <laughs> <laughs> Go on a potted history of uh, agave spirits, Eduardo, go for
10: it. Right, well, I mean, uh, agave spirits have been in Mexico for, for centuries, right? I mean, we, we drink, I mean, indigenous people used to drink, and we actually drink right now a fermented juice from the agave called pulque, right? Then uh, that comes around 5 to 6% ABV. So we could
0: call it like a, agave wine or agave beer, yeah? Exactly, yep. exactly,
10: and actually it was called vino de mezcal back in the day because mezcal comes from the Nahuatl mezcali, which means cooked agave. Mm-hmm. right? In order to make tequila, you need to cook and ferment the agave and then distill twice, right? So Spaniards brought distillation to Mexico and then they started distilling those fermented juices. And they were drinking vino de mezcal. And there is a town in Jalisco called Tequila where it started to, to grow agave, plants, but not only in in the tequila town, but in neighboring towns or municipalities of Jalisco. Mm. And then they set up the denomination of origin and it was established certain rules and different areas in Mexico, different states. But I think vino de mezcal or agave spirit has been in Mexico for centuries, Mm. since the Spanish conquest Mm. sometimes people
0: draw comparisons to brandy and cognac right so in that analogy brandy would be vino de mezcal like agave spirits generically obviously brandy being made from grapes and and uh, vino de mezcal being made from uh, agave and then the town of tequila would be the town of cognac right so a specific town that gained notoriety because of the quality presumably or or the fact that it was able to move it around a little bit better, or export it yeah. more su- successfully, gained its name just because it was it was a good producer of that particular type of spirit. And in a way, that town then almost kind of envelops the category, the, sm- the wider category itself. So cognac becomes more famous than brandy, tequila becomes more famous than Mescal. yeah, than mezcal. Is that is that a good
9: analogy, or do you think it's flawed?
10: No, no it is. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah.
9: yeah. It is no, it, it is. And Quite interesting when you talk about brandy as well because that actually really um, the Spanish uh, Spanish spirits actually helped the, the popularity indirectly of, of, of tequila and mezcal because the Spanish kings actually um, banned the uh, importing of, of, of uh, Spanish spirits into Mexico. And then obviously the boom of uh, you know, the mezcal started to, 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 to really expand. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's
0: an interesting that, that whole kind of colonial story because the same thing happened in rum as well, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you're living in the new world if you want to call it that um, away from everything you've ever known and you want some kind of some sort of consolation for this hardship and so you know alcohol of course would have helped with that historically but mm-hmm. um, but uh, you can't just be importing it across the Atlantic Ocean all the time, especially if the Spanish king has prevented that from happening. Yeah. So then you work with what you got, right? Exactly, yeah. And you look at whatever plants are indigenous and you start converting those into spirits yeah. instead.
10: And, and agave is, is across Mexico. So you find agave plants all the way from from the north in Chihuahua, Sonora, Durango, down to, to Oaxaca. We have two mountain rains and the, the agave grows in the mountains.
9: And just to display, Dispel one thing, I think I'm right in saying here that a lot of people had this idea that pulque was um, was was distilled and, and, and that was what, how uh, mezcal um, came about, but it wasn't actually, there was a different type of agave yeah. that was used, so it wasn't actually pulque that was distilled to make uh, mezcals and tequilas in the early days, it's a different type of agave source that was used, so that didn't happen.
0: Because there's loads of different types of agave, right? Mm. Are we talking like hundreds,
10: thousands? 200 different types of agave yeah. uh, in the world, and 150 are ethnic from Mexico.
0: So, um, when it comes to planting them, they tend, because I've, I've been in the uh, agave fields before, they, they they have quite a lot of space in between the plants, right? These things are not kind of shoved in together because presumably they, they need quite a lot of room when they get bigger. They have these these long, is it pencas? Penca? A penca. Yeah. Penca. Yeah. penca the leaves, yeah. 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 Um, sticking out so they're, they're planted what sort of size are they when they're actually put into the ground and then what size can we expect them to grow to in that kind of six to eight year period
10: well i think when they plant it is around 30 centimeters mm. i mean it's a properly baby yeah. an ave, and then they will grow up to 1.2 1.5 meters high yeah i would say
9: okay and and size wise as well can um can vary and we spoke about this um this part of the one of the unique uh characteristics of don julio uh and from a production point of view as well specifically that uh, don julio when he planted his agaves he planted them further apart than anybody else because he realized by doing that in highland areas that there's a very good chance that it would get obviously they get more sunlight and that would impact that the the flavor uh, profile at the end and the, the agaves would grow bigger um, and uh, and he, he, he was right. And that actually became um, uh, an industry standard practice after Don Julio um, used his great knowledge and innovation. OK, cool. So when did that happen, uh, that sort of first initiative to plant them further apart? That was... Before, I mean, when he he was experimenting quite a lot from 1950 all the way up to, but well, say 30 years is a long time to experiment. But yeah, he was. They really do take smart. a long time to grow,
0: though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you so do it once and yeah. you make your tequila and you
9: go, mm, not quite right. Not quite we'll right. Come back again in yeah, eight years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and at that point, he was actually growing his agave for up to 12 years. So yeah, I mean, he probably had three experiments, and the third one was it was a charm. So. That's um, like a
0: life dedicated to right. a working life dedicated Absolutely,
9: to Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so yeah, in that point, I mean, his first brand was, was uh, Tres Miguel's and that was um, launched in 51. Uh, well, Ready in 51, and then launched a little bit after that. But then, yeah, you're talking about Don Julio as we know it now, in the, in the 80s, really, is where, where everything, in the early 80s is where he sort of perfected his, his craft. Um, so, yeah, a long time experimenting, but around that time in the mid 80s um, it would have been yeah sort of people realizing that Don Julio was doing something very very unique and then um, adopting his methods as well that's one of the things that I said when I've been to Mexico and I've I've visited other distilleries and I say that there's a lot of respect for Don Julio and people tend to have open arms when you go to see them that they also do talk about the you know the production and and what he was like as an individual and I quite often say that he was a humble man but he was a he was a genius and he was an innovator.
3: Okay,
0: let's taste the uh, fruits of his labor. Then. Yeah. So um,
9: we've got Don Julio Blanco. So is this is the agave highland or lowland that's in this then? This is made in Atatanilco, um, which is in Jalisco. So this is a highland. It's a perfect expression of a highland um, of, of a highland tequila. Um, and again, as like, so you bring this to your to your nose, you'll you'll get. Uh, I mean, this is uh, such a a wonderful this kind of raw agave this is what i guess master distiller but if you go to a distillery you'll you know the agaves are chopped in into uh equal sizes and um you get that raw agave sort of aroma in the distillery and, and this is it you really notice that on the on the nose but you also get citrus you get different types of citrus here and sometimes for me, I can quite honestly say, and in the official tasting notes it will say sort of lime, and and then I get, I do get grapefruit. I get grapefruit mm. first, and I, and and then I will get the other citrus notes thereafter. And then obviously once we taste it as well, you'll find those notes that we just uh, just mentioned there. But you also get a slight peppery finish, and again, that's mm. quite, that's quite something that you you should find in a in a high quality um, Highland uh, Blanco tequila.
0: I certainly um, certainly citrusy. I've, and I know what you mean by grapefruit, it's limey as well. It reminds... And also, I get a sort of certain brininess to it as mm. well, like a kind of, you know, pickle brine kind of thing going on. Yeah,
9: and that's that's a really good point because I think, you know, with with uh, Don Julio Blanco, it's not... Some people rest their uh, Blancos for a short period of time. It's just, like, you know, pretty much off the still.
0: Yeah, well, there's kind of, uh, I guess, sort of two different aims there, isn't there? With vodka, it's to remove as much flavor as possible, hmm. um, and then in some cases talk about how you've managed to put flavor back in. <laughs> and then well, with agave spirits, it's more a case of like, right, How? what can we do? What strategies can we adopt to retain as much of the flavor of that plant as possible? It's very much like um, when you're making eau de V's, right? I mean, you could look at Blanco tequila as an agave eau de vie, right? Because eau de v makers whether it's plums or apricots or pears, they're kind of the masters of capturing the flavour of that plant in its purest, freshest form um, and putting it into a spirit so that it is preserved forevermore for you to enjoy, even when those things are not in season. And I feel like agave spirits, are, it, it's the same kind of process. It's how do we get the best out of that product, put it in a bottle so that we can taste the flavour
9: of this plant the entire year round? Blanco tequilas are just amazing. Like you know, when you talk about getting that everything that you can from from the you know all the flavors that you can get from the agave, it's all here. This is it's you know in its purest purest form. You get that lovely um, crispness that you can only find in a blanco tequila, and that lovely citrus. And there's a slightly peppery finish, but there's no burn. This is just smooth. And it coats your mouth and it also has great length because I mean, you know, five, ten seconds later I can still taste that you know slightly bitter receptacles are going, but also there's that if you rub your tongue on the roof of your mouth, there's a bit of sweetness still there as well. It's, it's wonderful.
0: What a great conversation that was. Now that's it for this special bonus episode. If you like what you've heard, you really should listen to the full length episodes, which are available on diajobaracademy.com. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.